Uh, now let's look at our scripture that actually uh, can be found in the back of the bulletin, and that's Galatians 4, 8 through 11. And in an ironic twist of faith, for some reason, John 1, 1 through 14 has been published instead. I'm not exactly sure who did that. I'm not going to mention any names, Evie Furbish, but <laughs> nonetheless, uh, we are going to be looking at Galatians 4, 8 through 11. So uh, uh, luckily, you have Bibles in the pew, uh, if you want to go ahead and take a look at that. Uh, but it's a short passage. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Uh, Galatians 4, 8 through 11 is what we are preaching on. If you do want to look in your Bible, Gala uh, General Electric Power Company. Galatians, <laughs> Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's how you remember uh, those epistles. This is Galatians 4, 8 through 11. Formerly... When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. The word of the Lord. Well, ever since we are, uh, were young children, we were taught by our parents the things that were dangerous, that could cause us harm. Whether it was walking out into the street, and we were taught by our parents uh, quickly that you can't do that, or putting your hand on a stove, there are a variety of dangers for small children. But it was about 50 to 60 years ago that a pediatrician in Pittsburgh came up with an idea. You see, there were children that were grabbing bottles that looked attractive, the labeling on the bottles, and they were opening up and drinking them, not realizing that the chemicals in them were poison. And so he came up with the eponymous Mr. Yuck. This is actually a self-portrait of me, Mr. Yuck. And you can still find Mr. Yuck today on a variety of different... Uh, pharmaceutical products and so forth. It was designed to give a label for kids to realize this is not to be played with. This is not to be touched. This is dangerous. This is poison. And there, of course, was the number to call the poison center in the event it was ingested. We still have some of those issues today, like Tide Pods, if you remember. I don't know if Mr. Yuck is on the Tide Pods, but he better be. See, it looks attractive to someone, and then when they go ahead and do it, it's not so funny when they end up in the hospital. Now, why, of course, am I talking about Mr. Yuck? I'm talking about what Paul is doing in this passage is pointing out to the Galatian church that something that they consider to be relatively inoffensive is actually poison to their Christian faith. He's slapping a label on religion and religious observances and saying that this is an enemy of the gospel. Might seem strange to hear that, that religion is an enemy of the gospel. And I'm going to unpack that. But what Paul is saying to the Galatians and what I am saying to you is that if you replace religion for the gospel, you will discover that the gospel brings salvation and religion brings bondage. 
The Galatians are falling for a trick, and we can too. For to equate religion with salvation is a deadly error. See, the point of Paul's passage and the point of my sermon is simply this. If you base your righteousness on anything other than the blood of Jesus, you are in bondage. And so we're going to examine Paul's thinking through this passage in the next several hours with three specific points. Number one, it's the gospel that brings freedom. And only the gospel, point number one. It's the gospel that brings freedom. Number two, religion is slavery. Religion is slavery. And finally, number three, we must choose the gospel every day. So let's begin as we break down these points. Number one, the gospel is freedom. Paul begins this passage in Galatians 4.8 by saying, Formerly, Paul is speaking to the Galatian church who has gone astray. They're no longer, they're, 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 they're gone off the way path, so to speak. There's a group of people called the Judaizers who have come in. And they have said, yes, Jesus is important. He's very important. You've got to have him. But if you do not also obey the Mosaic ceremonial and traditional laws in the, in, found in the Old Testament, you cannot be saved. In other words, if you do both of these, and you have to have both of them, you're going to be okay. And Paul is saying to these people, formerly, verse 8, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Notice, he's saying formerly, in other words, before you became believers in Christ, there was a time that you did not know God. Now what does it mean to know God? It means to not only know the truth of who God is, to know God's truth, but it's more than simply an abstract understanding. It's also a personal relationship. Because ultimately, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a person. Formerly, you did not have a relationship of trust and grace with Jesus Christ, with God through Jesus Christ. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Notice there are only two possibilities for a human being on planet Earth. Knowing God, which equates to freedom, and bondage, slavery, to those who are by nature not gods. Now what were these gods that they were enslaved to and we were enslaved to when we were not believers? If you look at the next passage down and uh, the next verse down, they're referred to as weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. We have unpacked what these weak and uh, elementary principles are. Principles are they are in essence evil, demonic powers, Satan and his fallen angels. Now I know in the West it's not fashionable to talk about the devil because he doesn't really exist. That's a primitive concept. But anyone with any shred of objectivity, if they look at the world and look at the things that man does to man, can obviously see there is evil in the world. And where does this evil come from? See, if we get rid of the concept of evil, then we have a God who is simultaneously good and evil. This is the concept of the, the yin and yang, if you've ever seen that symbol. But that is a very unchristian idea. God very clearly in the scriptures is good and holy and just. So where does evil come from? It comes from the fallen one. It comes from the devil and his angels. 
who is not equal to God. The devil is not equal to God. It's not a yin and yang. The devil is an angel that was cast out of heaven. He is not at the same level as God. And notice how he describes these evil powers as weak and worthless. You were enslaved to these weak and worthless powers. But now, verse 9 says, now that you have come to know God, in other words, to become believers in Christ, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to these weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Notice what Paul is saying. Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. In other words, what's more important is that God actually knows you. He knows you. And in the, in the, in the Bible, to, for God to know you means for God to love you. To, for God to be in a relationship with you means for God to accept you. Because God cannot look upon evil. Here's some passages that clearly indicate this in the scripture. Psalms 5, 4. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. And Psalm 101, 7 says this. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. So the only way that we can come to be known by God is for our sins to be wiped out. For us to have a righteous record, for God to accept us, means for him to regard us as righteous and holy in his sight. And so Paul is saying that now that you have come to be known by God, in other words, 100% accepted and loved to the point of actually being called a son and daughter of God through Christ and his blood, how can you turn back? How can you, in other words, place your trust in someone or something else for your righteousness? Whose slaves you want to be once more? Now notice that. Nobody has a gun to the Galatians' head. No one is forcing the Galatians to go and be slaves to these demons, these weak and worthless elementary spirits. The Galatians are actually choosing it. Now we have to ask the question, why would anyone choose to become a slave of someone else? The answer is no one would do that. Really what's happening is Satan is deceiving them into believing that what he is offering them is better than what they have now. Satan has set a trap. It was a friend, uh, a father of a friend of my wife who said that Satan always wears a tuxedo. Satan is the great deceiver who dresses up things. Satan is, is the sharpest tool in the shed, aside from God. He knows that we're not going to willingly enslave ourselves to something else, so he dresses something up beautiful. Satan has set a trap, if you will. And the result of this trap for the Galatians is bondage. Because whenever you rely on anything else to justify your existence, then the finished work of Jesus Christ, you will always fail. It's only Jesus Christ that can free us from the consequences of our sin. No one else has the power 
or the willingness, if you will, to do so. I don't know if you know the story of John Newton, which was detailed somewhat in the movie Amazing Grace. He was the slave trader who became a believer and ended up writing that beautiful hymn that we sing all the time, Amazing Grace. Well, he was a slave trader. He was the captain of a slave trading ship. And there was this monstrous storm that came upon him. And he cried out to God in fear. And God met him. And he, even though he had grown up hearing some of those passages, he'd never believed. Well, God's Holy Spirit came upon him and he became a believer on that ship. And his life began to steer, no pun intended, in a different direction. He came to realize the evils of the slave trade and left it. He ended up speaking against it with William Wilberforce. Uh, uh, but he could escape the slave trade, but John Newton couldn't escape his past, could he? He speaks in the movie of hearing the voices of 10,000 souls, the slaves which he traded for profit. How does one get rid of that kind of blood on your hands? Well, you can try to live a good life for the rest of your life, but how good does it have to be to clean your hands of the misery of 10,000 slaves? The way I see it, there's only two options for John Newton. Number one, he can drink himself into oblivion and try to forget. Number two, he can work himself to death in hopes of a penance that will never arrive, for which he will never receive absolution. Or he can place his hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he did. And he clung to Jesus Christ and the freedom that came through Jesus Christ for the rest of his life. Indeed, on the mantle of his study, so he could look at it every day, he had a plaque written and made up that was of Deuteronomy 15.15 that said, Thou shalt remember that thou was a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. John Newton's hope was the blood of Jesus Christ because there was no hope anywhere else. See, this is something each of us needs to remember. God has often forgiven sinners, but God never forgives sin. Hear that again. God has often forgiven sinners. He never forgives sins. What does that mean? It means that someone must pay for every single one of those sins. Every single one of those slaves that was traded, somebody has to pay for. And guess what? God is so holy that every single impure thought or motive or word spoken that we have ever done, God never forgives those. They have to be paid either by Christ or by us. It's only Jesus that can bring us freedom. Anything else, our sins remain and we are in bondage. That brings me to my second point, the counterfeit. Religion is slavery. Now this is very interesting. The Galatians were relapsing into paganism. And the way they were doing that was subjecting themselves to the Mosaic law. How can those two go together? Notice in verse 10, 
after Paul is clearly communicating to these people that you're submitting back to these elementary demonic powers, he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Judaizers who have come in and said, if you don't observe these various festivals that are commanded in the Old Testament, you cannot be saved. The Galatians are going back to these principles, these laws in the Old Testament and following them judiciously. Now, why are they doing this? And how is Paul, in equating following the law to following demons, how can that be true? Because is not the law good? Is not the Old Testament good and right? And the answer is yes. But these Judaizers, and ultimately Satan, is is tempting them to use the law as a vehicle for self-righteousness. See, they are now trying to use the law of God as a divine job description to help them demonstrate their moral accomplishment to God in order to receive favor with God. The favor they already had through Christ, they're trying to work to receive through the law. See, this is how Satan works. Satan is not against religion. may sound surprising to you. He's not against religion in this way. He is relentless in his efforts to destroy your wholehearted dependence on God's sovereign grace. So if he cannot make you disobey the commands of God, he will bend every effort to make you obey them with the wrong spirit. Satan doesn't care if you try to keep the Ten Commandments, provided that you take the credit for obeying them. He's all in favor of whatever moral agenda you have, provided that you rely on yourself instead of the Spirit of Christ and take credit for it, instead of humbly giving all glory to God. Religion is just as good a trap for him to damn people to hell as irreligion. See, Paul saw behind the legalistic teaching of the Judaizers. He saw it as an age-old demonic scheme to destroy genuine faith within the church. And the point that I'm trying to make is that religion used in this way is just as bad as irreligion. In irreligion, you don't trust in Christ and you give up trying to please him or please anyone for that matter. And you do whatever the heck that you want, right? Religion is that you don't trust in Christ and his grace. And instead you substitute the law for Christ in order to be be, uh, righteous through the law instead of Christ. Religion is like a camouflage. It was the great preacher Charles Spurgeon that said, Beware of self-righteousness. The black devil of licentiousness or irreligion destroys his hundreds, but the white devil of self-righteousness destroys his thousands. The result of using religion to justify yourself is bondage. Because when you begin to trust in the law, Satan uses the law to condemn you. Constantly. Because no one can ever live up to it. He taunts you. He torments you. You can never do enough. You can never be good enough. 
until often you finally give up. See, religion is a prison of our own choosing. The chains are very quiet. It's hard to hear their clink, but they're there. Maybe you are familiar with Charles Wesley. Charles and John Wesley, the, the men who began the Methodist church. Wesley's father was a pastor. And Wesley was educated at Oxford, where his brothers also studied. And Wesley was zealous for religion. He started up a group in 1729 that was called the Holy Club. Probably wasn't called the Holy Club by them. It was called by all of the other students who were mocking them because of their constant religious observance. They would constantly set aside time for praying, examining their spiritual lives, studying the Bible, and meeting together. In addition, they took food to poor families and taught orphans how to read. These are all good things. Unless, of course, the reason you're doing them is for self-righteousness. Because amidst all of the holiness and all of the good actions, Charles experienced no peace, no joy. It was never enough. He went so far as to lead a missionary uh, evangelistic journey across the water to Georgia to preach the gospel in 1735. And yet he had no peace. It was only in May of 1738 when he was ill when he was lying in bed where he opened his Bible to Isaiah 41 and Charles felt God's salvation come upon him. His journey entry for May 21 reads, I now found myself at peace with God and rejoiced in hope of loving Christ. I saw that by faith I stood. By the continual support of faith, I went to bed still sensible of my own weakness yet confident of Christ's protection. Charles Wesley would go on to pen 6,500 hymns, many of which are sung in the church today. One of his most famous being, And Can It Be? Here's verse 1, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me whom him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And then in verse 4, many believe this is an autobiographical verse about Charles Wesley's experience of conversion, where he said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. See, what Paul is doing, and what I am hoping to do with you, is to expose Satan's ploy. Because following religion for our righteousness is a losing game. For who works for what he already has? Is Satan playing the same game with you? 
If you are a Christian, you have all the righteousness you'll ever need. Jesus Christ's blood is efficient and effective to cover every single stain. The sin has been paid for. But you hear that subtle whisper from Satan. It's not enough. He really didn't cover all of it. You've got work to do if you're going to make it. So get to work. Pick up your Bible. It's on you. Trust in yourself. Why do you follow the commands of God in the Scripture? They're not bad. Is it out of gratitude and love? Not because I have to. Because I get to. Because I want to. Because I know that He's good. Or am I slowly climbing up this religious ladder in hope of someday making it to the top of the building? It's a shell game. It's a cage. Because if you base your righteousness on anything other than the blood of Jesus, you are in bondage. I want to tell you, if you are not yet a Christian, and there are probably some of you in here, I remember the time when I was not a believer. Religion is a very, very poor substitute for Jesus Christ. And they're not the same. If you, if you start on that trail, you'll never finish it. It's an endless cul-de-sac. We go around and around. But any day like Charles Wesley, any day you can trust in Christ's righteousness and yield to Him as King because Jesus is the only Master that can set us free. Christianity is a religion of sons and daughters, not slaves. This brings me to my final point, that we must choose the gospel every day. I wish I could say that that whisper goes away from Satan, but he is the deceiver until the end. But thank goodness that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And one day we will live by sight, not by faith, when Christ comes again. How do we live and stand only on the righteousness of Christ so that we can experience this life of freedom? The way to live the Christian life is to remember who and what we are. See, that's the essence of Paul's message here. Once you were slaves, now you are sons and daughters. How can you revert to the old slavery? The way for us to avoid the Galatians' folly is to heed Paul's words and let God's word keep telling us who and what we are if we are Christians. See, that's one of the great purposes of daily Bible reading, meditation, and prayer. We don't do it to check off the list or to get our religious points for the day. We do it to get ourselves correctly oriented, to remember who and what we are. We need His Word to flush our souls, to reorient us like God's compass again to who we are. 
And we need the fellowship of the believers, don't we? We need the voices of brothers and sisters in Christ to help drown out the whispers of Satan. I mean, that's really why you're here today, isn't it? It's why God calls the church together on Sunday. It's why it's important for you to not neglect the fellowship. It's why community groups are important. You don't just go there so you can check off the box, so you can grab some pizza. You go there to be encouraged in the faith, to hear other brothers and sisters, because God speaks through each one of us to one of us. We're a means of grace, if you will, to each other. It's why we get together for adult education, to hear God's word, to remember who we are. It's why we build friendships with one another. See, by the grace of God, we must determine to remember what once we were and never to return to it. To remember what God has made us and to conform our lives to it. I think that's why John Newton put that plaque up on the wall, right? What plaque do you need to put up on the wall? What do you need to do to take this fight seriously in your own life? The word casual and Christianity is not found in the Bible anywhere. It was none other than the great deist, Thomas Jefferson, who said the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. Maturing and growing in Christ is learning to protect the treasure that you have. I mean, if you had a million dollars, would you go lay it on your front porch before you went to bed? Of course not. You'd guard it and you'd protect it. And that's what the gospel is. It's the greatest gift, the greatest treasure we could ever have. It's what you stand your life upon. So what do you have to do? I can't answer that question. That's the hard work of application. Hopefully, I've done my job. Now it's up to you. In fact, in adult education, what we're going to do is we're going to get together and we're going to talk about what are things, and let's hear from one another, what are things that we're doing or things that we can do to protect the gospel, to keep it front and center so that we stand on it. Because if you base your righteousness on anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ, you are in bondage. But it is for freedom that Christ set us free. So stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that every single sin, every single one, was paid for in full in Jesus Christ at the cross for us who believe in your name. Lord, let us not believe the deceiving whisper of Satan that says it's not enough. Let us no, not go back to religion as our source of righteousness because all that gilded cage is is a cage of bondage. Let us rather stand on Christ and Christ alone and as we obey, we obey out of gratitude and love, not out of compulsion or fear. We pray all of these things in Christ's name.